Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and uh, that thing you asked about, I got a guy. <laughs> I feel like that would have been more appropriate for our last episode about Italian-Americans in the Bronx. I might have got confused and That's you know, okay. misplaced them, but yeah, uh, no you know, that's... We'll get it done for you. Right. You know that thing. Yeah, the thing. The thing is a podcast. We're going to do that. <laughs> I got a guy. Yeah, you're the guy for the podcast. You're the guy, too. All right. What about me? And Oh, and uh, Dave. Dave is, Dave is actually the guy. If you said if you said I need a podcast yeah, and we got, I got a, guy, a guy, it's Dave. In fact, people have told me they've needed podcasts, and I told them I got a guy and have recommended Dave. All right. Excellent. So in this. They, when they meet him, they say, you're the guy? And he is the guy. He says, I'm the guy. Yeah. Then they work it out. Okay. Good stuff. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1989. And in this episode, we are up to the best picture winner at the Oscars, Driving Miss Daisy. I can already tell by the way you said it, Josh. You're going to shit all over this movie. I know. You know, I will say, I think uh, we talked about a certain other best picture winner called Forrest Gump that uh, I definitely had a lot more issues with than with this film. So what a ringing endorsement. My level, uh, my level of, uh, of hatred towards Forrest Gump was strong. And uh, I don't feel as strongly about this film. We'll, we'll get into all of it. Okay. Driving Miss Daisy, starring Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy based on the Pulitzer Prize winning play by Alfred Urey, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1988 and was first uh, staged in 1987. This movie, in addition to being uh, the Best Picture winner at the Oscars, was a commercial success, grossing $145.8 million on a budget of only $7.5 million. It was nominated for nine Oscars, and it won Best Picture, as we just said, Best Actress for Jessica Tandy, Best Makeup, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Alfred Urey, who wrote the screenplay based on his stage play. Pretty much a universally acclaimed film. Yeah, what a run. Like. Huh? Yeah. You know, staged off-Broadway in 87. The only movie to have ever been uh, win the Best Picture from an off-Broadway play. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and the turnaround between this movie being or the play being staged and being made into a movie was so quick. You think of that usually taking much longer. So short. Yeah. But it was just a massive sensation immediately. And although a lot of studios, I think, turned it down, uh, the movie version, but still, you know, all you need is one and then it became a huge deal. So dumb studios. Dumb st yeah, they regretted it, probably. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very well regarded by critics. And by audiences, it got an A plus from CinemaScore, the audience polling service. And that's a very rare thing. So it was a feel good movie for the audiences. Two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, who were just raving about it on their show. And uh, I had a hard time finding anything negative about this movie. Roger Ebert in his review. But you'll have an Ebert no, I actually, saying. I, 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 I will have some. Yeah, yeah but no. I couldn't find any like reputable reviews that were negative. Shows how irreputable you are. I sure am. Uh, Roger Ebert said, The movie spans a quarter century in the lives of its two characters from 1948 when Miss Daisy's son decides it is time she stop driving herself and employ a chauffeur to 1973 
when two old people acknowledge the bond that has grown up between them. It is an immensely subtle film in which hardly any of the most important information is carried in the dialogue and in which body language, tone of voice, or the look in an eye can be the most important thing in a scene. After so many movies in which shallow and violent people deny their humanity and ours, what a lesson to see a film that looks into the heart. And that's the thing that Siskel and Ebert were talking about a lot in their review about how subtle this movie was. And man, do I not agree. Not very subtle. <laughs> no, it's really not. I mean, and, and if it is subtle, I feel like that's to its detriment because it's like underplaying the very serious like social issues that are going on around these characters. Well, see, I'll disagree with you there because I've, I mean, they have to deal with it in everyday real life. So that, you know, when you deal with it all the time, every day, it becomes more of an ordinary part of your life. So sometimes it doesn't become the biggest thing until you do have an instant, like when they got pulled over in Alabama. And even that though is was... such a nothing scene. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Henry Sheehan in the Hollywood reporter said the fitful development of the script aside, the movie is dominated entirely by Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy who managed to retain individual star quality while acknowledging the other's presence. Basically, each scene breaks down into a brief setup, a furious emotional demonstration by Tandy, a clash between the two actors, and a closing wry pronouncement by Freeman. Yet every one of these dramatic maelstroms manages to appear fresh, because Freeman and Tandy somehow manage to come up with new approaches, meeting out complementary aspects of their characters. It is a very, like, formulaic in its own way kind of film. Well, again, it's a two-hander based on a play. Right. Based on these two characters. Yes. So that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Do you know who played her on uh I mean we know Morgan Freeman played the stage version of Hoke. Do we know who played the uh, I you know I noted down some later like some bigger names who who performed in stage versions later. I think the original stage Miss Daisy was not like a, a super famous actor, so I don't know. But maybe we can look that up. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Morgan Freeman, I mean, that was a big thing that he was the original Hoke in the stage production and didn't expect to get cast in the movie, but he did. Yeah. And it worked out you well. You know, the only other name I read for that, Eddie Murphy. So as a potential casting for the movie? For him, yeah. Oh, for that would have been terrible. Him and and he was way too young at the time. They're going to have him and Bette Midler. Oh, God. <laughs> and now you, now, you know now I love this movie because <laughs> that version is horrible. <laughs> Uh, um, I did think it was important that, you know, obviously the, the, the central thing here is the relationship between a white woman and a black man she employs. So I thought, uh, getting a, a take from a, a black critic might be a good way to go. Dessen Thompson in the Washington post said driving Miss Daisy sounds poisonous. Another quote, bittersweet drama in this case, involving an old Jewish widow and her black chauffeur adapted calculatingly and no doubt unimaginatively from a Broadway hit that's guaranteed to drive you out of the movie theater. But wait, Daisy reaches you in all the places it intends to, in part because Alfred Urey adapts his, yes, Broadway hit with intelligent restraint, and also because Tandy and Dan Aykroyd make their significant marks. But the movie gets you mainly because Morgan Freeman, who played chauffeur Hulk Colburn in the original stage production and won his third Obie for it, takes the wheel and drives Daisy all the way home. And he spends probably half his review talking about all the reasons he thought he would hate this movie. And then he loved it. Yeah. It's like, what a disappointing review for you. 
I know. I was like, like, I agree. I agree. Oh, what? You like it? Oh, come on, man. No, I mean, and I, I thought that was a good perspective to have, though, because this is someone who sees all of the ways that this movie is set up in a kind of stereotypical fashion, and yet it wins him over. And it didn't quite. I mean, again, I didn't hate this movie. I, honestly, I thought mostly this movie was boring as hell. Yeah. I, I thought it was all right. I don't I don't love it, but it was it was fine, you know. All right. Had you ever seen it before? No, I had never seen it, but I do think this is like the first movie I remember winning Best Picture. Like remember, I remember like the, watching the Oscars or remember hearing about it, you know. That yeah. was like the first one I think. Yeah, I don't know if I I probably did start watching the Oscars around this time or maybe a year or two later, so I'm not sure. I don't have any specific memories of it. And I had not seen this movie either. Uh, I think despite the fact that it was so highly acclaimed at the time, its reputation has definitely uh, suffered in subsequent years. Mm. And so, you know, this wasn't a movie that I ever thought like, oh, I had to catch up on this. I movie. don't know if it's suffered as much as it's been spoofed, like on like in Living Color and all these, uh, you know, a lot of shows with like the kind of old white lady bossing the black southerner around right well i mean i think that's part of what has happened to it is that it became a caricature and people are laughing at it and so it doesn't seem like a movie that's worth taking seriously mm, that was that was a tough thing that i was reckoning with while watching this is like because you know we talk you know morgan freeman is playing this character that is not what we know as the morgan freeman persona on screen you know for one, he doesn't narrate at any point in time, but uh, <laughs> no narration in this movie. But there's, you know, like we said, a lot of characters saying yes, um, and, you know, very Southern. And it's like, um, you know, uh, look, man, he won. He won an O for it. Right. Um, and he, and he was also nominated right, for an Oscar, although he yeah, didn't win. Daniel Day-Lewis won. Yeah. But he did win actor and she won actress and it won picture at Golden Globes also for musical comedy. Right. And this is not, and also I noticed it, it was nominated or maybe even won some, a bunch of American comedy awards. Oh, and this really? is not a comedy. It's not. But, um, you know, there has to be a reason that he played that character that has to be, you know, an honest portrayal of what the research brought him. I know that Yuri said that uh, he based a lot of this on his own family members, right. the Southern matriarchs and uh, how they dealt with their paid help yeah it's tough to, it's tough for us as like just two white guys in 2020 to kind of place this correctly i'd say yeah maybe so i mean and it, there is that level of authenticity it was one of uh, i think three plays that alfred yuri wrote about his experience growing up jewish in the south and that's that jewish aspect is something that kind of gets overlooked when people criticize this movie yeah and i think i think you know that i mean like um did you ever have to deal with anti-Semitism? I definitely dealt with anti-Semitism. I kid. don't recall. And I mean, I part of that is, and we're getting a little off topic here, but part of that is that I don't think I come off as like stereotypically Jewish and I it's only kind of half of my heritage. So maybe people don't notice it. Yeah, I don't think, I, I don't either, but a lot of, but you know, growing up in a small town, like yeah. people know who, you know, who the Jewish kids are and who this are, you know. Yeah. But yeah, they, I mean, like there's a big scene where the, the temple gets the bombed, you know, and- I think it's important that they both have to deal with bigotry based on their heritages as opposed to just one of them. Right. That's true. Well, let's get into that more then. We can come back and talk our general thoughts on Driving Miss Daisy. Well, 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we're talking about Best Picture winner Driving Miss Daisy, which I feel like doesn't hold up all that well. But Jason, you liked it more than I did. Yeah, but I didn't love it. And, you know, it beat out uh, Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poet Society, Feel the Dreams in My Left Foot. So, you know, a good field, I'd say. But this was definitely the momentum. This, this I think, was one of those movies that had all the momentum going into award season, right? Yeah. It was the first Producers Guild winner, PGA winner for Best Picture. Um, you know, it won the WGA for Adapted Screenplay, won the National Board of Review for Picture and Actor. So, you know, it just it just had all this um had all this momentum. Also, I found it interesting it was the last movie that was rated PG to win Best Picture. Yeah, that doesn't really happen anymore. But I mean, you know, we're still dealing with this idea of Oscars so white. So, you know, like is this one of those situations where like, oh, this is a nice story of a a tame black man, you know, right. acquiescing to an older white woman. Right. Or maybe not acquiescing, but it's the idea that like, you know, this kind of bland superficial friendship is you know overcomes racism or papers over real social issues that maybe other films deal with more directly well you know uh, right as it's interesting though 1989 and we talk about this and do the right thing they're literally like diametrically opposed right with how they deal with it do the right thing is is the hip-hop version and this is the nice kind of classical version i guess um uh although the Hans Zimmer score was made with only synthesizers and no other instruments. So that's a terrible score, really. Yeah. Hans Zimmer is known for nowadays, these like big bombastic, like action movie scores. And it sounds nothing like any of the stuff he's done yeah. lately. Did you find out who played the lady? No. God no, dang. did you even look anything? I started, I went down a labyrinth and I was trying to pay attention to you guys. Nah, I, I don't pay attention to us. <laughs> I know it's a tough one for me to place, Josh. I'm I, like, I don't love it, I don't hate it, I don't know where to place this movie. Uh, other than I like the performances and the scenery, <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, the scenery is nice, and I, I think one thing the movie does well, and, and neither of us have seen the stage production, but. It doesn't feel stage bound. It opens it up a decent amount. There's a lot of different locations uh, in the movie, even though it's limited in terms of characters. It doesn't feel like they're just in one place the whole time. And that's good. You know, that can be a a difficult thing when you adapt a play into a movie for it to feel a little confined and claustrophobic. The performances are fine. I just I felt like the characters don't really have very much depth to them. And so regardless of how well performed they are i couldn't really invest in the relationship between these two people honestly i just thought miss daisy was kind of a dick the whole time i didn't get that as much as like the proud southern woman who wasn't willing to let anyone in you know and then you get that big scene where she's kind of broken down at the end and um, she tells Hoke that he's, you know, that you're my best friend, Hoke. And yeah, like, and it takes like 25 years and dementia setting in for her to be able to do that. Well, I mean, I think that scene's important and probably why she won Best Actress because she shades that that um, vulnerability very, very differently than what we've seen of the character up until that point, uh, Jessica Tandy. And, uh, you know, the last scene is nice where he goes to visit her in the in the... I guess it's a nursing home and he, you know, he feeds her pie and 
they you see they they do care about each other i mean he doesn't have to go visit her at this point in time. right no i mean he's obviously meant to care about her i mean and i think that's something that kind of is soft about his character is that she kind of treats him like shit a lot of the time like she doesn't abuse him but she doesn't treat him nicely really almost ever until the very end after 20 plus years of him working for her like he gets paid but that's largely because her son because dan Aykroyd is uh you know generous with paying him but i just didn't feel like warm and fuzzy about their relationship i didn't think she treated him at first she definitely treated him like shit after a while they just settled into their routine and you know it was an employer employee relationship right but i mean if we're meant to invest in it as more than just that and that's the whole point of the movie is that this is a genuine friendship it's not just an employer employee relationship then I think I needed more of a sense of them having an emotional connection. And even when she, okay, maybe stops treating him like crap and is a little more like a little kinder to him. There's still tons of scenes of her being very dismissive. You know, the scene where he says he's got to pull over and pee because he can't use any of the bathrooms where they've stopped before because, uh, you know, colored people can't use those bathrooms. She won't even let him do it until he just does it on his own. Mm. And this is after they've been together for years right and that's another scene where she ends up showing vulnerability and worrying about him afterwards but i can see all of your um you know problems with this relationship and um like that's what i'm saying like it's tough for to properly place this film yeah i mean i guess i i didn't have as tough a time of it as you did to me i was more i'm more i was more easy ready to dismiss it even though i do think it has positive aspects i don't think it's a terrible movie or a harmful movie, as some people might have claimed it could be. I guess, you know, um, I didn't see Green Book, but did this come up a lot when Green Book came yeah, out? Yeah, that's a note that I have for us to talk about in the legacy, but it came up a lot when Green Book was up for Best Picture, and especially because it was competing against a Spike Lee movie, uh, yeah. much as uh, it did, did Driving Miss Daisy did with well, Do the Right Thing. Well, I mean, thing. It, it didn't compete against because do the right thing wasn't nominated right that's true but it was it was contrasted against uh another spike lee movie black klansman which was actually nominated right you know um, and is a very good movie it is a good movie and green book is a bad movie and green book is a worse movie than driving miss daisy i think this was definitely a puzzle piece on the uh, green book episode i'm sure and then it's a it's a it's a worthy puzzle piece it makes a lot of sense so what what did you like most about this movie Jason, I told you already. All I right. There's nothing else. I mean, it, it's a. I I think, like, I mean, it's the dialogue's good. You know, you it's, think? yeah, I don't think it's bad at all. I think it. You know, all um, the all the yesums. I mean, that's. I mean, how much of that is because of the area that they're in, and how much of that is because of all the other things we wonder about? You know, I I, I don't know. It's a slice of life, I guess. It's. I didn't love it. I I guess it was just fine. Like you know, like. But again, like, you know, it's still being performed today as a very popular play. So it is. I mean, there's something, something. I don't know. Are we missing something or are other people just kind of not looking into it deeply enough? I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that it's popular because it's very like comforting and reassuring on its surface level. You watch this movie and it's about how these two people from very different backgrounds can come together and form a personal bond. and you know, all of the outside issues of racism and bigotry are irrelevant because these people can bond together. And so that's an assuring thing for you to watch as an audience member. But I don't know that it's convincing, at least not to me. Yeah. 
Um, I will say, I know you hate Dan Aykroyd. And you, <laughs> and you haven't said anything bad about him yet. So uh, I mean, I don't hate Dan Aykroyd. I don't know that he's right for this part. He but fine. He was he, nominated for Best Supporting which Actor. Which definitely was not warranted. Um, I mean, it's a small part. And truthfully, oh, probably any actor could have done a fine job with it. There's not a lot of emotion in it. I mean, he's mostly just like a facilitator of the plot. And his scenes are mainly about hiring Hoke or paying Hoke or, you know, moving things from one place to another, helping Miss Daisy do something. And so, yeah, he's fine in it. I definitely don't think, I mean, I'm trying to think of another like dramatic role that I've seen Dan Aykroyd in, and he hasn't done a whole lot uh, on that front. My girl. I've actually never seen my girl, which uh, if my sister is listening, she'll go crazy because she loves that movie. Gross point blank. Oh yeah. But that's not it. That's a comedy. It's a dark comedy, but it's a comedy. Yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out, uh, yeah, like, I don't know why you think I hate Dan Aykroyd though. It seems like someone you would hate. I know. I mean, Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> like, I mean, he's kind of gone off the deep end in recent years, uh, just as a guy, but, uh, so what do you, why, why do you say that? What I mean, he's, he's big him? into like conspiracy theories and like, uh, oh. weird. Yeah. Just like, I don't even know what the last time I saw him in a movie was. Uh, but I, I don't have anything against him. I think he did a lot of funny stuff in the eighties. It just does. It does seem like this isn't really like, I can't imagine reading this play and thinking, get me Dan Aykroyd for that role. Yeah. Well, he was a big star then, you know? Right. I think that was what they, part of what they needed because Morgan Freeman wasn't really a big star at this point. He was mostly known for being on stage and Jessica Tandy was kind of way past the the era when she was well known. And so they needed a big star. She was the oldest Oscar winner ever when she won this. Yeah. Age 80. Right. Since or 81, since surpassed by Christopher Plummer. Oh, right. For beginners. Yeah. And then uh, one of the James Ivory just won a screenplay award at age 89. Yeah. For Call Me By Your Name. So the other people that I had read about uh, and, you know, names that you would expect were Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Lucille Ball. That would have been interesting. Yeah. I've seen a movie, the last movie that Betty Davis made in 1989, and she was definitely way too frail to be. in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was the last one? Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury, who did end up playing the role on stage Mm, later on. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's it, you get a good sense of Georgia. Is that, is that a thing? So. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it is a thing. And they did shoot all of this stuff on location. And it has an okay sense of place. I mean, the kind of, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the Jewish aspect of the movie that gets a little underplayed, but it does show you that thing that you wouldn't necessarily think of that Jews in Atlanta is probably not the first thing you imagine or when you think of the South, when you think of Georgia, um, but that's a community that exists and it kind of gives you a sense of that and her playing Mahjong with her yeah, friends. It's a very Jew. old Jewish lady kind of thing to do. I think, uh, I think that's an old lady, not necessarily a Jewish oh, okay. lady, but yeah. I think you're right that they could have shown a little more of that Southern Jewish uh, subculture and that would have been an interesting to watch and they also mentioned you know the Aykroyd's wife played by Patty Lapone, who's who's got nothing to do in this movie. yeah I saw her in the as, credits when it was yeah. opening I thought oh what is she gonna do yeah. the answer is nothing she's such a good actress <laughs> yeah. right but she you know they talk about how she kind of celebrates Christmas and doesn't really recognize her Jewish heritage and that's an interesting sub uh subplot that they didn't go down the, the road for and whatnot so like you said this is really about the two main characters and we had a little Esther role in there as the maid and whatnot. And 
it just kind of goes and does its thing and yeah. the, the 18 1989 <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i kind of am curious I don't know anything about the other plays that Alfred Urey wrote about growing up Jewish in the South, but I wonder if those maybe deal more directly with that experience. Cause that's really just a very small element of this. It's so funny though, because like you said, like you couldn't find anything negative press wise about this. Right. Right. And I just amazed me like watching the Siskel and Ebert clip. I'm ready for them to say something. And they were just overjoyed with this movie. Yeah. And like, I, d- I didn't like it very much. I could see having your reaction, which is like mildly positive versus my mildly negative. But it, it I struggle to think of how you could just be like blown away by this movie. I wonder like Morgan Freeman now if he, what he would say about the performance. Because I think like you said, like or like I said, not you, because you don't ever make <laughs> no, it. No, cite yourself. Yeah, yeah, please. As Jason once said <laughs> earlier in this podcast, like, there's a reason he played the character the way he did, uh, you know, with all the yesums and this and that. Well, I, I mean, it's the way that it's written. Right. But I mean, you know, kind of wasn't like we recognized the Morgan Freeman character. He had that kind of higher pitch and always jovial kind of attitude that we would say could be taken as very stereotypical of a black man of that time. Right. But like, but there has to be a reason that that was the truth for the way he felt that should have been performed. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think he's ever said anything bad about this movie or about that role, even, you know, in the past 30 years. So it's not like this is something that is so culturally outdated that everyone looks back on it now and cringes. I think people involved in it, and I mean, obviously Jessica Tandy isn't around anymore, but I think Alfred Urey still is. Uh, Bruce Beresford, we haven't even mentioned uh, the director of this film, who is not American, so came in with kind of an outsider perspective. Yeah. He's Australian, but he, you know, he's done some other good movies too. Yeah. He's very much a journeyman director. He kind of followed this up with a bunch of things that I hadn't heard of, but he still works very regularly. And, and it, it feels like he came in like, because the play was such a juggernaut that you get a director for, and you've already got one of the stars of the stage version. You want a director who's just going to kind of come in and let the play speak for itself. And that's kind of what but he, he does did. a good job of like, you know, setting the scenes and, you know, so much of this is about the, as the title tells driving Miss Daisy, you know, there's a lot of driving. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, it's all well-crafted. Yeah. I mean, from a, from a craft perspective, directorially, you're right. I mean, this is someone who knows what he's doing, knows how to put a piece together. Uh, One thing I know that you liked very much about this movie is that it was not long. Yes. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it is for a movie in which essentially nothing happens. It is paced fairly well. Like it moves along, you know, and it spans 25 years in just a little over 90 minutes. Like it definitely doesn't have lulls per se. I mean, we can mark time in this movie very clearly by Dan Aykroyd's receding hairline and uh, expanding waistline. You know, it really is clear about that. It's a 25 year period. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so in that sense, the direction is fine. Um, and the performances that, I mean, however much he got those performances out of those actors versus what they already brought to it, I think, you know, he, he does a perfectly good job with that. But, I mean, going back a little to the, 
the Jewish aspect, I do think there are some unexplored elements there. The idea of Dan Aykroyd's wife and the celebrating Christmas, that's something that I identified with, you know, coming from a kind of a mixed background and, and my mom who's Jewish and she loves celebrating Christmas. And the idea of that being something that you have to do to kind of fit in, because it's clear that there aren't a lot of other Jews, especially not in the, oh, yeah. in the business world where Dan Aykroyd's character works. I used to hate Christmas, man. All my friends were, you know, getting presents and I was just waiting for fun, you know? So you got I some Hanukkah that. presents though, right? Yeah. But you know, when you're a kid, you want to be part of all that. Right. 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 Now I love Jewish Christmas, you know, <laughs> going to the movies and eating Chinese food. I love that. Who yeah. needs, who needs Christmas Christmas when you got Jewish Christmas? Right. That is nice. So yeah, that was a, an underexplored aspect of this movie, but also the social change going on. I mean, there's the whole uh, kind of a big notable scene where Miss Daisy is going to a reception where I was kind of unclear on this. At first, I thought she was going to see Martin Luther King speak in person. Yeah. But I think it was not that. It was just they were all getting dressed up to listen to him on the radio. I thought that they were going to hear him speak. And she had the two tickets and asked uh, Bully, her son Bully. Right. We should have. I, that's a yeah. great name. We definitely should mention um, that. And he said, you know, I'm not going to go because it might look. Again, another that was a subtle way that they yeah. dealt with racism. He's, yeah, I mean, I he loves know. Martin Luther King. He agrees with him, but he can't do it because, you know, he's Jewish, and if uh, all these people see him supporting him, they might drop their business with him and go to the other Jew in town. Or right, you know, and he's New already York on Jew. thin ice just by being Jewish. Right, and there's a there's a New York Jew who they all think is the smarter Jew. You know, yeah, the hierarchy of Jews. Yeah, so. <laughs> Um, and he says, why don't you ask Hoke? And she doesn't really do it until they're in the car ride there. And he stands up for himself then and says, I'm yeah. not going to go with you. This is a half-ass invitation. If you wanted me to go, you should have just asked me. I mean, a tiny bit he stands up there. But, but what I'm saying is that I was confused about what exactly that is. Because she's going to this, like, exactly as you said, she has tickets to this reception. And I thought it was a reception where Martin Luther King is speaking in person to That's these people. That's what I thought, too. But in that scene... They're listening to a speech that Hoke is also listening to in the car on the radio. And you never see Martin Luther King. And the way the sound is, it sounds like a broadcast. To me, that was all these people just getting dressed up to show their support. And they're all just listening to him on the, on the radio. No, I thought that he was speaking at the reception, but it was played over the radio. I didn't think that was what it was, but it was confusing either way. Well, you know. It was uh, the only part of the movie that was not very obvious. <laughs> you know, we go from the late 40s to the early 70s. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 48 to 73 is yeah, the time frame. So I think you're trying to deal with the ever-changing scope of uh, segregation, integration, racism, and acceptance in this time. And, um, you know, they said it was all subtle, and you said none of it was subtle. No, I didn't think it was subtle. Or, or if it, it wasn't subtle, it was just not there. You know, I mean, anytime they do address it, it's very clear. But I feel like part of the fault of the movie is that most of the time they just don't address it. And it could have been set in, you know, fantasy land or whatever. There's no real relevance to it. What did you think? You know, the other thing, uh, again, a bit uncomfortable, of course, Ho can't read, you know, and it's I like... thought of Wayne's World and the <laughs> fake Oscar clip of Mike Myers crying, I never even learned to read. It's such a, a hokey bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the way she teaches him to read, you know, by just sounding things out and she gives him like a writing book and and whatnot. Uh, and then we don't really follow up on that. It's until like some one later scene, he's kind of like, Using his he's thing. reading. He's yeah, reading. So like, I thought that would be a bigger thing. And it was, I mean, I, I think guess, that's what they're talking about with the subtleties. But I, I feel like 
it's not subtlety again. It's just like a dropped plot point. It didn't feel subtle to me. It felt like it was poorly followed up on. Yeah. <laughs> Jason has nothing left. A lot to left, reconcile. Nothing left a for lot this to movie. Reconcile, you know? Yeah. You want to like these characters and, but at the same time, I, if you had just been like, Hey man, they made this guy like a, a dumb black worker. Like I'd be like, man, that's a, harsh criticism but i think you could totally get that from this you know yeah. like totally unfair of them to do that but you know i don't know it does seem know. like a little bit piling it on that he can't read yeah like how how common was that really i don't know yeah so, yeah yeah i mean it could have been worse certainly and there's a lot of potential pitfalls here that it doesn't go down the road as as condescendingly as it could have but i don't know that that's a point in its favor necessarily just because it could have been worse. Do you know what I thought about some of these scenes with Hoke? I ended up thinking about the Samuel L. Jackson character in Django Unchained, and I was like, man, this is that uh, satirized to the nth degree. Right, it? right. The 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 subservient, uh, the slave in that movie. Who's just happy to, right. you know, have a white master treat him well. Right, right. I mean, and I think the, the most, like, uncharitable view of this movie is something like that. Well, now, that I, you know, it's interesting that we're having this conversation and you're like, man, how, how did everyone miss this? Right. I was expecting something that some dissenting voice in some major publication, and maybe it did exist and I just didn't find it. But, you know, again, especially looking up that Washington Post review from, from Destin Thompson, who's a notable African-American critic, you know, and a very politically aware guy went on to work for the Obama administration. And like I said, spends that whole review or half the review talking about why he probably wouldn't like the movie. And then he just fucking loved it. And then you, you know, you think like, well, oh, it's 30 years later. Right. You know, that would not have gotten the same response. But then Green Book won, you know. That's true. I mean, there was a lot more criticism for Green Book. Yeah. Like Green Book did win those Oscars and get a lot of positive reviews, but you would not have to look hard to find negative. No, I know. Well, look, man, we live in a time where Rush Limbaugh gets the presidential medal of freedom. So people have obscured views of uh, reality and race relations to this day. They do. And that may be part of why this movie endures. But again, I think it could have been a lot worse. And this movie is not harmful per se, but I don't know that it's helpful. I think that's a fair, you know, kind of encompassing statement about it. And uh, it's just, it is weird that it is so, or was so universally acclaimed. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I bet Spike Lee didn't like it even in 1989, but I'm not sure <laughs> what he had to say at the time, if anything. Have you ever seen this movie, Dave? I'm sure I saw it in high school a million years ago. Yeah, yeah. you don't remember anything. I remember all the, you know, I like Jason said earlier about it being so spoofed over the years. You know, it's just such a pop culture reference. Yeah, that is true. So, uh, well, we'll talk about that a little more. But sure, uh, first, uh, should we give this movie a rating out of, uh, I don't know, Piggly Wigglies? I did like uh, my favorite line in the whole movie is when uh, they're driving to the grocery store and he says, yonder the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> I just thought that was great. <laughs> I had it at three Piggly Wigglies, but you might have uh, convinced me to, I'll give it three, but it's shading towards losing a half Piggly Wiggly for me. Yeah. So it's like two Piggly Wigglies and a Piggly. Okay. So, yeah. you know, I would, I would give it definitely two and a half Piggly Wigglies, which is not a terrible, like I said, it's not. We're talking about a best picture here that's universally beloved. Right. right? And I didn't hate it, but it, it does feel 
very slight. I'm just trying to reconcile in my head of like, he's talking about real experiences he's had, right? So it's like this idea of racism without knowing that you've had any racist experience type thing. Yeah, I mean, and he's talking, but like the real experience of this movie is, this movie is written by Bully, you know? That's Alfred Urey's real experience is the... He his mother had the chauffeur, you know, he experienced it from that perspective, not from the black perspective, obviously. Yeah. But again, you know, he's a, a Southern Jewish man. So he's had his own set of uh, bigotry that he had to deal with. It's, right. It's which so just doesn't it, there's not enough of that in this movie. I think you need more bigotry needs more. Josh's bigotry. quote. The world needs more bigotry. <laughs> <laughs> let's, we'll be right back. Yeah. Let's come back and talk about the legacy of driving Miss Daisy. We interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast to bring you an exciting announcement. You love movies and TV. We know you do because you're spending your precious time listening to this awesome podcast. And if you love this podcast, we've got another we think you might like. I'm Shannon. And I'm Phaedra. And we are Stinger, the entertainment podcast. We're two fangirls who love TV and movies just like you, and every two weeks we discuss what we're watching, from Netflix to Hulu to Amazon to network TV, movies we've seen, and what's coming up next in entertainment. We hear so many people ask, what should I binge watch next? Or is that movie really worth seeing in the theater? If you have those questions, we're here for you. And you can decide which one of us is right. (laughs) So check us out on your favorite podcast app Or you can listen on our website, stingerpodcast.com. Just search for Stinger Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Or connect with us on social media. We're Stinger Podcast everywhere. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1989, we've been talking about Oscar Best Picture winner Driving Miss Daisy, the legacy of which is no one thinks it deserved to win. Really? That is one thing I think that comes across. Even Bruce Beresford, there was a recent big article uh, about him in The Hollywood Reporter on the anniversary of this movie. And even he was like, well, it was good, but I can see how someone else might have thought it something else should have won. What would you have chosen? I mean, I think at this point, even though it wasn't nominated, Do the Right right Thing thing is the one that comes up all the time. But I I mean, Born on the Fourth of July still is acclaimed. Uh, Dead Poet Society still acclaimed. Field of Dreams, I don't know how you got in there, but it's a good movie. Yeah. And My Left Foot, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis won for Best Actor for that one. So Right. Actually, of those, the only one of those I've seen is Field of Dreams. Oh, it's a good movie, but I don't, I don't know how it got in over uh, Do the Right Thing, except for the fact that it's not made by a black person. Yeah, I mean, about... I think you do know, and you just answered it. I mean, look, dude, Do the Right Thing is a masterpiece. Great movie. Yeah. So um, it's, it is tough now that you're... You know, maybe that's the legacy is uh, it's made me do a lot of thinking. (laughs) Well, that's good. Um, But certainly, as we were talking about earlier, especially when Green Book was nominated and it was up against Spike Lee's Black Klansman, this came up a lot as an example of how far the Oscars have not come since 1989. Right. They had one year where they were like progressive and now they're back to Oscars all white. Right. Not even so white. It's all almost and bong. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and uh, this year, Cynthia Erivo. Yeah, but it's it's very tokeny still. Yeah, and in and in 1989, there wasn't even a token. We didn't even get a nomination for Do the Right Thing, 
And so I think in that sense, this movie feels well, outdated. No, that's, you know, I mean, if you're comparing it to now, like Harriet didn't get a nomination. She that's, got the nomination. That's true. Well, and to be fair, Harriet isn't a very good movie. I didn't see it. But I mean, there are other examples from this There's most plenty recent of year. Them, you know, yeah, even if Harriet, I don't think that's the one that people pick out as deserving of the Best Picture nomination and not, not having gotten it. But um, she just happens to be the one. Who yeah, the he, uh, and this, you know, one, one of the interesting things was one of the few movies that uh, won Best Picture without a Best Director nomination. Yeah, I mean, and I think as we were saying earlier, the direction in this movie is mostly just kind of not getting in the way of the play. Well, then it then it did that. It did do, <laughs> it did do that. But um, yeah, I think it's it's legacy, and I think also when you see these lists of like ranking the best picture winners, this movie does not rank highly on those kinds of lists. We did talk about Baron Munchausen earlier this season, which this beat out for the best makeup. Oh, what well, that is odd, like. Honestly, like I was talking about Dan Aykroyd's receding hairline in this movie, and it's it's pretty obvious. Like the, the makeup is not the best. Um, no Baron Munchausen. Definitely fan, no but, Baron Munchausen. But uh, the, but Baron Munchausen should have won the best makeup over this. I yes, think. absolutely. That's what I'm saying. That the makeup in this movie is really it's okay, but it's not award winning, and certainly not better than Baron Munchausen. Um. So Morgan Freeman, I mean, was somewhat known, but this movie really just like no, rocketed no, him. To not start just up. this movie, this year, yeah. 1989. This movie came out one day after Glory. Right. And he also had Lean on Me this year, yes. which is still iconic. Yeah. Expeditiously. <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was quite a year for, for Morgan Freeman. And so the combination, I mean, this movie probably the most, but the combination of those three movies just instantly turned him into a star and i think if we watched all three of those you know we're looking at very different performances in front of this film which is which is great because you know we're questioning certain aspects of this one so. yeah i mean he's he's versatile i think as we kind of he's settled into a certain kind of part that we know him for now but maybe in in this era he was able to show more versatility because he wasn't as well known i used to do a joke and it was so esoteric about how Morgan Freeman's narrated so many parts in movies that I wonder if he narrates his life at this, you know, point in time. Right. I will have toast, warm and buttery, you know, for breakfast this morning. But anyway, he's still uh, still great, Morgan Freeman. We love him. Yeah, I think he maybe is, you know, at the, I mean, he's in his 80s at this he's point. He's playing he can, like, he you can know, coast. That's cool fine. old man doing, right. you know, road trips, you know, and that's it now lately. Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, he's done so many great things. Seven. Yeah, seven is great. That's one of them. Yeah, that is one of them. At first, I thought you were indicating that he seven did, he did seven things. great yeah. things, and that's yeah. it. That's the exact number. No, that's I'm, still pretty good. Yeah, you know, I read this. Uh, I remember him on Actors Studio, and he was talking about going in for an audition, and he was playing like a killer, and uh, everyone was doing this audition of like, you know, big and loud, like if you don't do this, I'm gonna kill you, you know that. And he's like, well, I'm just gonna go in and go the complete opposite way. And he did it very quietly and menacingly and he got the part and like, he's always looked to try to go a different way with the way that you would expect something to be played, which I think is a very interesting way to go about it. Yeah, that's good. I think unfortunately now, again, he's so known for being Morgan Freeman that you can't, no one's going to hire him to do anything other than the Morgan Freeman thing. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah. I think it happens to a lot of actors who get really, really famous and they just kind of get locked into their personas. Um, but certainly you can, 
regardless of what you think about this movie as a whole, you can see how Morgan Freeman would become a star off of this movie. We had no, uh, you look, the only performance complaint I had was like, why are you casting Patti Lapone to do nothing? Right. That is definitely uh, a concern. Jessica Tandy, of course, had an amazing career leading up to this, but this did revive her briefly. Yeah. She got another Oscar nomination after this. What? For Fried Green Tomatoes in 1991. Fantastic. Yeah. And so she kept working after this for another four or five years before she died at age 85. Um, but I mean, to have a career revival at age 80, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, uh, you know, another um, a movie worth looking back on that I haven't seen in so long. Uh, her last movie, which she died before it came out, Nobody's Fool. Oh, the well, Paul Newman yeah, film. Good yeah, good movie. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I think it's worth revisiting. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about that movie. Um, and we mentioned Bruce Beresford, who still works and is kind of a journeyman. He's done a lot of other vaguely social issue related movies. Nothing, nothing really that's made the impact of this film, though. Not to be confused with a producer I once made a deal with, Bruce Beresford Redman who three weeks after signing a deal was arrested in Mexico for murdering his wife. <laughs> Definitely. No one wants to be confused with the guy who murdered his wife. And that's one of the reasons why I sit here with you now in the career doldrums I'm in. <laughs> because you signed a deal with a wife murderer. No, it's kind of funny. It was like one of my first TV deals that I signed. And then it's like, Oh, this is exciting. And then three weeks later, front page of the Hollywood reporter, reality TV producer murders wife in Mexico. Not funny per se, but um, tragic. Shall we go with tragic? Tragic is a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, ironic. Well, I don't know if it's ironic, but. Uh, I remember uh, long after that, after that TV show came out, the, his producing partner called my writing partner and was like complaining about me. And I'm like, how can you complain about anyone? Your, your partner is a murderer. Like, <laughs> you don't have a leg to stand on here. I mean, it's not his fault that his partner was a murderer. Yeah, he, he wasn't good either. The partner wasn't good either. Okay. Nothing to do with driving Miss Daisy. No, really nothing at all to do with driving Miss Daisy. Or Bruce Beresford. Hey. Non-murderer. Non-murderer <laughs> Bruce Beresford. As far as we know. <laughs> when he hands out his business card, it says Bruce Beresford, director slash non-murderer. It's an important detail. Yeah. But yeah, he still works. Uh, he does some TV movies. I, I think the last thing I saw of his was like a two-part A&E TV miniseries about Bonnie and Clyde that was mediocre. Yeah. Did some of that Roots uh, revival. Yeah, he works, but but never really. This was the height of his career. It yeah, seems like. I mean, Tender Mercies, I think. Is that was probably, before this, I think. Right, but yeah. that's probably his second best known film. Yeah, yeah, but this was really like, he didn't capitalize on this maybe. The way he could have. Yeah, he's still working. That's no, good. no. It's still it is good. And and like I said, there was a recent big article by his daughter, who is a writer for the Hollywood Reporter, looking back, and he seems to he's got a pretty good life and is happy with he's how doing well. Out. Yeah, didn't sign any deals with murderers no, with similar didn't. names. Definitely so not. You know, like we're happy for him. We are. And the play has continued to be revived, as you said. Some actors who've played the parts include uh, Clark Peters from The Wire. James Earl Jones, uh, both have played Hoke. He played Miss Daisy. Oh, uh, no. yeah, that would have been interesting. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave and, as I said before, Angela Lansbury have both played Daisy. I mean, among others, but those are some of the bigger names that have done it on stage. And it remains popular. And we recently, of course, had a stage production that came here to Vegas starring uh, Clarence Gilliard of our own uh, UNLV, UNLV uh, along with Sherry J. Wilson. And so, yeah, it's something that people still go see. 
even though the movie is there, they'll still go to the play. And Josh, I know you interviewed uh, Clarence in uh, for a magazine. You know what, being a writer and such. Oh yeah. Didn't you say? Didn't you have like a good quote about the magic of the play or the character? Oh uh, yeah. I see. I should have written this down. Uh, you love citing yourself. I do. Yeah. Um, and now I want you to cite yourself. Well, I can't remember the. I don't want to misquote him. I can't remember this exactly. Well, give us the. the I mean, it's something like he said. It's it's like huma- humanity in ninety minutes or something like that. Um, so I, you know, people still connect to it, whether they're performers or audience members, it's something that still resonates with people. There you go. There you go. So that'll do it for driving Miss Daisy. And for this episode of awesome movie year, you can follow us on the social media. You could, uh, we're at awesome movie year on Facebook and, uh, Instagram, awesome and, uh, awesome movie pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook, Instagram, Jason J. Harris Comedy on Twitter. And as always, my under construction website, GoPerJason.com. I'm at JoshBellHatesEverything.com and Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this podcast and also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And Jason, what is our next episode? Is it uh, this guy? Is it this guy? Oh, is it Dave? Oh, hey, Dave gets to talk again. Special I'm man. Excited. The special man gets a special pick. Dave's, Dave's pick. pick. Weird Al Yankovic's UHF. And I'm very excited because that could have been my pick too. So we're going to team up on Jason uh, with our love of UHF. I'm down for this. And can we already get this out of the way? Dave's hair? Kind of like Weird Al. Yeah. <laughs> That's an accurate assessment of Dave's I'm hair. I'm sure this it'll time. come up again next week. Yes, I think it will. <laughs> so tune in next time for UHF. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.